Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. My name is Paul. I hope you are all safe and well in these uh, rather bizarre times that we're we're in at the moment. Um, I know this uh, pandemic is having a a varied array of... um, very bad effects on people uh, I hope it hasn't impacted you you too much but um yeah it's a difficult time and it's hard to be positive in that time um but I feel obliged to offer some kind of uh utopian perspective on it or utopian way out of out of this crisis and I think one thing that's worth bearing in mind is um crises unforeseen crises uh, throughout history has have often uh, been a, a catalyst for um, huge shifts in the way society is is organized um, I was talking to my uh, my co-host of get object Rosie earlier today who was uh, who mentioned about how the the black death um, which uh, as she said is, is was on a completely different scale to what we're dealing with uh, today but but nevertheless it basically end, ended feudalism was a big part of, of that happened that crisis and there are many other crises through history that have that have um, kind of provided a a, a, a fissure that's um, allowed for something new to emerge so that's something that could happen here um, I think it's worth bearing in mind that uh this crisis won't inevitably lead anywhere. It, how, where it leads will, as always, depend on us, and it will depend on on uh, yeah. There'll be there'll be people seeking to to come out of this in various different ways, and it will, will as always, depend on people fighting for um, the results that that they want to 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 ensure that something positive come out can come out of this, but. Again, crises like this, you'll be already seeing that this is a time where the conditions of possibility and impossibility are in flux. Um, things that have happened in, in some countries here and there of like suspending mortgages and governments um, basically writing off people's energy bills for, for three months and things like this, uh, various governments trying to implement universal basic income these are all things that seem you cannot imagine happening in any form um mere weeks ago now suddenly possible um obviously these are have been implemented temporary temporarily but but nonetheless the point is as i've said before in this podcast when we're talking about utopia we're often dealing with conditions of possibility and impossibility um people that use utopia as a as a term to criticize people is to say that you're kind of living in a dream world you you want the impossible and they say they're dealing with with practicalities and the part of the goal of utopia i think is to um shift the um shift our perspective on what is possible and um that is again that's something that's happened happened throughout history things that to, to reference the, the to go back to the Ursula Le Guin quote I reference a lot the 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 divine right of kings is a the idea that the divine right of kings could be ended and could be could 
could uh, could be succeeded by something else seemed impossible at one time and then and then it became possible um so yeah i think i think that's the best um you know as i said i don't want to like so i don't want to say to people oh, this is good because i know this is a really difficult time for a lot of people including yeah it's a really difficult time for a lot of people and it sucks but i'm just trying to yeah, just trying to provide a bit of a positive spin on it to say that crises are, are moments when things can shift in our episode with um with a seriously wrong podcast where we talked about um inventing the future a big part of that book was the idea that we should be pairing preparing a counter left hegemony for a time of crisis where um where people are more susceptible to new ideas and that's what we're in now so something good um could hopefully come out of this in the end we will see but anyway that's enough of that let's get on to talking about this episode today so this episode is about snow crash the uh, 1992 neil stevenson novel which is a, a cyberpunk book or rather a cyberpunk parody book um also being called post cyberpunk uh joining me to talk about it is lucy brady from the weird signal podcast i won't explain what that is now because because um, we'll talk about that when we get into the conversation with Lucy, just to say it's a podcast that I like that I think is worth checking out. Just quickly before we get into the, the conversation with with Lucy, um, if you want to help support this podcast and get access to uh, more episodes, there are extra bonus episodes available on patreon.com slash utopian horizons. That helps me to keep doing this and, and gets you extra stuff to listen to. Um I said this on Twitter, but like if you're in a position where you don't have much money to spare and for some reason listening to me is something you like, I uh, I can't imagine why, but you know, what, whatever you're into. And if you need something to get you through like social isolation or whatever you're having to do, then get in touch with me. I will see if I can... Get, I'll sort you out with some of the Patreon episodes for free. Um, just if that's a little thing I can do to to help somebody, then I'm willing to do that um, while we're in this in this time. Um, I, I there's look there's loads more there's loads of other good stuff out there to listen to. Um, you can just uh, ask me for recommendations instead, and I'll point you towards other stuff. But, but if for some reason you look at my Patreon feed and you think, oh, there's an episode or two here I wouldn't mind hearing, let me know and I'll, I'll I don't know how I'll do it, but I'll find a way of um, sorting you out with that. But yeah, if you <laughs> if you're in a position where you're you're lucky enough to to still have a stable income at this time and uh, you're um, and supporting people and um, supporting me on Patreon is something that you can uh, comfortably afford to do, then yeah, please consider checking the Patreon out and um, supporting me on that. Yeah, I don't think I need to say anything else for now. Uh, it's been quite a long intro because of all that extra stuff. So let's just get on to the, the conversation with Lucy about Snow Crash. Joining me now is Lucy Brady. Um, I know Lucy through a podcast of hers that I, I am a listener of um, called uh, Weird Signal. Thank you very much for joining me, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So uh, before we get started on uh, what we're going to be talking about today, do you want to um, 
give listeners a bit of a, an introduction to uh, Weird Signal and explain uh, what it is. Because okay, you know, yeah. you, you know, when I go on a when on iTunes where it has like suggested uh, people that listen to this also listen to on my podcast, it um, for a long time has had Weird Signal. So I'm guessing that people who listen to this might like Weird Signal. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I, re- I remember actually. I- I remember it did a similar thing and like for a long time, I think it was like in the early days because we were quite connected to the Diane podcast. Um, right. uh, it was just like, it was Diane and then it was just all Twin Peaks podcasts for like the <laughs> entire list, um, yeah. which is kind of like which by no means a bad thing. But no. um, basically the main thrust of Weird Signal was, um, well, when, when we initially started out, we wanted to cover the... Um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of taken on a life of its own, because it, the initial premise was that we were going to make it a, a purely kind of like hauntology podcast, uh, drawing on the work of Mark Fisher, uh, who was a, yeah. um, who I'm sure many listeners to this podcast will already be familiar with, but who was a lecturer at Goldsmiths and a, um, a, a kind of a critical theorist and thinker and, um, and wrote a lot about um, media and the idea of um, hauntology as well as uh, writing on uh, ideas of kind of the weird and the eerie was one of his great works, and also um, the notion, the concept of capitalist realism. Um, and so we kind of we started off from with that as the starting point, just looking at hauntology, exploring kind of its hist- uh how it came into being, and and also just generally kind of gravitating around the idea of um, the world post nineteen ninety two, post the end of history, and what that means and what it almost certainly doesn't mean and stuff but over over the kind of like two years now we've been in existence we've we basically just kind of used it as a platform for taking a piece of media and exploring um any kind of like either using it as a kind of exemplar of a genre um so for example one of the earliest ones we did was hardware which we looked at in terms of cyberpunk which I'm sure will contain a couple of points I'm almost de- almost certainly going to be returning to in this. Um, or we would just kind of try and try and unpick a film in the context of whatever interesting kind of critical avenue we felt it would be fun to explore that month. And um, and so you know our most recent ep- episode actually returned quite heavily to the subject of uh, hauntology, which is when we looked at Donnie Darko. And the idea of kind of like yeah. America at the end of history, and um, and yeah, and and we've got many many plans to kind of continue from there over the next year. Cool. We've recently actually just come off a kind of couple of month hiatus, uh, so we're effectively on season three, although we haven't really demarcated them very clearly as to where season one ended and season two began. But yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So yeah, check it out and uh, weird spelt with a Y. Yes, that was our kind of because. Um, I think that was like a, a thing early on we insisted on because we were going to be heavily uh, involved in the kind of folk horror angle, um, and and we still are, and we still plan to return to them. We've done a couple of episodes on that, but yeah, weird with a Y and signal with the normal spelling. Yeah, cool. So um, yeah, to get onto to our subject for this episode today, we're going to be talking about Snow Crash, the uh, ninety uh, novel published in nineteen ninety two by. Um, Neil Stevenson. So I uh, actually, I originally thought this was just like another cyberpunk novel um, before Mm -hmm. I'd read it. Like I just thought it was, you know, 
you got Neuromancer and uh, and um, uh, the, who's who's the who's the other guy? William Gibson, uh, Neil Stevenson. Who's the other big sci-fi guy? Oh. I'm trying to think of. Oh my god! Yeah, Bruce Sterling. Uh, I think Bruce Sterling. Yeah, yeah, who wrote the cyberpunk manifesto kind of in the early eighties? Yeah, so that guy. And I thought this was just another one of, of of those. But I started coming across the idea just as I was preparing to read it for for this that it was actually maybe a parody, which. So yeah, this is what I would ask you to, to start off with. Like, to to what yeah. extent do we do you think of this as a cyberpunk parody? Because to me, when I started reading it, I thought, oh yeah, like this is a <laughs> this is just all parody. That's this is what this is. But by the end, I think it's like a bit more complicated, perhaps. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I don't know. I think I'm probably going to like kind of launch off on that with a a fantastically banal point, which is the fact that. Um, I think of all cyberpunk literature I've read up until this point, this is the one that just statistically has the most, the highest number of things that have actually come into being. Um, Which, you know, obviously kind of like all cyberpunk is sort of written about the present or a future which is um, only a couple of steps away from the present it's dealing with. And also uh, this was kind of like, not quite a whole generation, but it was like kind of 10 years after, I think, Neuromancer, mm. uh, or thereabouts. The bad part of a decade, anyway. But, um, yeah, and it's like kind of, it's 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 the parody one that's borne out the most truths, weirdly. Um, but I think the, the other thing I would sort of raise about approaching it as a parody is the fact that um, if it is a parody, it's a parody kind of to some extent written from the inside. Uh, because I think that there is a there is a kind of um, general understanding about William Gibson uh, when he was writing Neuromancer that he didn't actually um, that you know it's kind of it's a joke often made by um, by hackers that um, Gibson, despite being kind of synonymous with cyberpunk culture and um, being a kind of hero figure for computer programmers and things, and I think it's even in the film Hackers, the great computer is called the Gibson. He himself. Large, was largely unaware of many of the finer points of uh, computer science. Yeah, um, and like uh, like myself, was an English graduate and um, and was kind of dealing with dealing with kind of like uh, speculations that were possible from a um, either a, a limited understanding of the actual processes of computer programming or um, theoretical writings which had come before and been elaborated through computer programming and things. Um, but unlike that, unlike, unlike Gibson, uh, Neil Stevenson was actually fairly closely, um, involved in, well, actually, no, his, his biography is kind of a confusing one because, uh, he start he graduated, I think from, um, oh yeah, he's, he started at Boston. So I'm guessing kind of like was, um, like kind of MIT proximate, if not right. actually part of that. And he, um, stu- yeah, studied geography with a minor in physics, but he was kind of very much involved in computers at that point in his life. And I think it's a uh, note somewhere in his biography that he actually started off majoring in physics and um, minoring in geography and then switched them around because, weirdly, the geography department allowed him greater access to the computer facilities at the university. And thus he was able to devote more of his time to uh, computer programming stuff. And then over the subsequent 10 years, he, or, you know, sub, uh, late 80s and 90s, uh, pretty much 
all the biography, uh, all the biography uh, biographical sources I was able to come across from him just talk about his writing. And then in 2000, he became part of the, um, well, he worked as an advisor for Blue Origin, which was the Jeff Bezos funded, funded aerospace program. And um, it, it's kind of weird because it's like he was, this this narrative sees him as a kind of outsider figure and then suddenly he's like, no, he's actually literally working for Jeff Bezos and yeah. stuff. And it's unclear whether um, he was there as a kind of ideas person to provide vision that would then be translated into more practical um, kind of tech-based solutions or, <laughs> or approximations to the rough ideas that he was sketching out. But, but I think it mentions also in his biography that he um he left that company after it became it became apparent that it was uh, morphing from its original startup model into a more traditional aerospace thing. So it's what I'm what I'm what I'm getting at here is that this is even though he's sort of satirizing Silicon Valley and um, kind of hacker culture and the kind of freewheeling, very often kind of like libertarian politics that accompanies that, he is still part of it, and that needs to be borne in mind whenever one's considering kind of to what extent this is a parody. But yeah, so let's let's actually kind of just think about the ways in which this is a parody. I mean, like, I guess like, I'm just kind of thinking over my notes here, just um, the, the term I came, kind of found myself using quite a lot in writing about this was the one late capitalism. And mm-hmm. that's one that's gonna, I'm sure gonna come up a couple of times in this. Um, but one of the things that it's important to bear in mind with that is that there are kind of, it's one that's kind of entered the lexicon in a in a very much kind of it's entered the lexicon a, a great deal more within the last ten years, um, yeah. but has existed since kind of like the nineteen. Well, the two great the two main texts on it um, that use the term late capitalism were um, the the key one being like Frederick Jameson's uh, postmodernism or the logic of late capitalism. And he was using the definition that was borrowed from um, Ernst Ma- Ernest Mandel, uh, who I believe was writing a couple of decades earlier. Um, but it's that's based on the idea that capitalism exists in stages, and it's derived it's derived largely from Marxist thought. And um, late cap late capitalism doesn't necessarily imply like well, I mean, it's a misnomer in some ways because it does sort of hint that there is an end state or that. It's yeah. um it's approaching an end state, and that's what well what I was what I was getting at earlier is that there's there's kind of like the the theoretical like model of the idea of late capitalism is as important I think in considering this book as the the less specific more popular use of the term, which is um, largely concerned with um, late capitalism as an aesthetic of absurdity. Uh, implying which carries its own kind of critique of capitalism because it's implying that it's it's absurd and it's something that can't last hence it's you know entering its final phases and Mm. what we're looking at is a state of kind of decadence Um, and I think even though um, that's sort of divorced from its original um, formation that's what we're looking at in the novel um, Snow Crash uh, with you know because it begins with um it begins you know, with a very, very actually striking scene of a description of its uh, main character hero protagonist, who is, um, which again, yeah, like that, that's um, its hero spent his, a key thing that comes up in this is the fact that he's uh, mixed race, uh, African-American and Japanese. And so it's the Japanese name hero. 
yeah. and then just protagonist is his surname. I don't know if there's an explanation for that. Um, no, yeah, there's, there's your first clue. It's a parody. Yes. And then, <laughs> uh, and then it explains, it describes kind of this extremely tense scene of like driving down the freeway in, I think it's, it is in San Francisco at that point. Um, to, well, what is kind of like the geographical region that was once San Francisco, which we're going to probably talk about in a minute. Um, and it's just this like hair raising kind of like car rate, you know, yeah, just it's an extremely tense kind of like sci-fi scene, um, like action scene yeah, in which he's going to deliver a pizza. And yeah. that's kind of, that's fundamentally absurd that there's all this intense uh, technology. Um, there's all this extremely refined expertise. There's all this kind of, all these computer systems and really rigorous guidelines of like what needs to be taken and how how the act of delivering a pizza by you know um intersects with all these other kind of existing systems like kind of the legal uh boundaries that he's crossing uh hit the what's permitted to him as a pizza delivery person that's maybe not permitted to the general citizenry and mm. he's he's delivering a pizza <laughs> and it seems like a kind of you know He's, he's described like a fighter pilot going... It, it's the equivalent of like a fighter pilot going to deliver a pizza. And it's... Yeah. yeah that's That I think is like kind of perfectly captures kind of the absurdity of like a kind of hyper accelerated state of capitalism as it's presented in the novel. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, I, I was going to talk about this a bit later actually, but seeing as you've, you've kind of um, put it up there. Actually, before I get onto that, shall we... Uh, try and explain what this book is about for people who, who perhaps haven't read it. Yeah. <laughs> I, should have done, I should have said that up front, but... Um... Uh, yeah, I've, so I've got like kind of a brief um, rundown of, of the narrative in this. Although I think it's like, I think it's it wasn't necessarily a bad move on our part to start off with that just because, well, to start off the way we did, because one of the things that I would emphasise about this is in, in a way, almost, like, more so than a lot of, um, that I encounter in a lot of, like, science fiction things, um, that the world building is the story as much as, like, the actual story, and certainly that's what mm. a vast amount of the text itself is actually devoted to. Um, yeah. but the narrative itself is, um, well, it takes place, as we've described, in a kind of near-future San Francisco, in which traditional, uh, systems of nation-states have failed to keep up with the flows of capital, and have thus kind of fragmented into um, weird sort of quasi-autonomous or totally autonomous mini-nation-states or nation-states that are broken up into little fragments that appear in other territories, which are described as exclaves. Uh, so kind of, there's, there's a, among the many kind of like, by this point, um, by this point kind of like stereotypically cyberpunk thing there's a lot of portmanteau mm. phrases that creep into this text yeah. and uh one of the most useful is uh franchulet which is a <laughs> a delightfully ugly word but it's a uh, portmanteau of franchise and consulate this idea that a corporation now that it functions effectively as a nation state um is able to establish little bits of territory on its land on on in other countries which mm. function as a tiny patch of that sovereign state, which is or sovereign corporate or corporation corporation that behaves as a corp as a sovereign state, and so we have a a franchise a franchised uh, mini city state within another territory, um, and and the world is now con consists of many of these uh, with 
Well, I think it's it's worth reeling off a couple. The, the big three that come up are uh, Nova Sicilia, which is effectively the mafia, um, who uh, Hero we find is the one working, who is working for them. Uh, with, mm. That's the company he's working for, who's run by this kind of um, weirdly charismatic figure called Uncle Enzo, who I'm sure we're going to be talking about a fair amount. And then, um, and then there's also Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong. And the other one that's presented that comes up as kind of the big rival to Nova Sicilia is Narcolumbia, which is this sense that it's it's a South American state, which um, formerly the Colombian territory, which has now been completely taken over by the cartels um, and mm. deals primarily in, in drug trafficking. But and and there there are many others. Um, but so it's in this context that we find hero protagonist, who's a kind of he's a as well as being like a kind of sword fighter and this kind of action figure, he's a veteran hacker uh, and was an entre... Well, hitherto a success... I think he's identified as being kind of either an entrepreneur or proximate to entrepreneurs, but certainly kind of quite successful in um, this territory called the Metaverse, which is yeah. a vast online VR system, which is forms yet another kind of autonomous territory that... It's kind of like a digital no man's land, much you know, modelled on the early internet, uh, yeah. devoted exclusively to uh, business, but also pleasure. Um, but at the point at which we join his narrative, he's dropped out of life to some extent um, for reasons which I want to go at, actually into in a couple of minutes. Um, and is now living in a shipping container with uh, a, a roommate who is also a rock star guitarist named Vitaly Chernobyl. And he's delivering pizza. Um, yeah. And um, and then from there, it's, it's in this capacity as a pizza delivery guy that he forms a loose partnership with a skateboard courier called YT, um, who's, it's just the initials YT, which stand for yours truly, but there's um, a lot of confusion because people people hearing it phonetically assume her name is YT. And that that is brought up an awful lot um, in, in the text. And then... Uh, in, so in doing so, they become embroiled in a conspiracy involving uh, someone called Raven, who it turns out is working for a kind of cult leader megalomaniac called Bob Reif. And uh, this uncovers a plot to revive a mimetic virus dating back to pre-ancient times that's tr- transmitted through language, um, which is reaching its perfected form through the dawning digital age, uh, and which Reif intends to use to rule the world through basically neurological domination. And that's what we're getting up to. <laughs> um, and that is the book Snow Crash. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so um, what I was going to say before I uh, asked you to for kindly summarise that for us. Um, so what what it's doing with the the parody? And you mentioned how how ridiculous it is that we have this guy who's like almost yeah, like you said, like a pilot, and it talks about him having this um, like arachnofiber weave that he's wearing. You know, all these like cool cyberpunk gadgets, and then you realise that it's all employed towards delivering pizza. Um, so, there, I mean, you could obviously just think about that as like making fun of cyberpunk tropes, mm-hmm. but also it kind of does capture something about the way capitalism works now in that the most kind of, uh, like the, the most intelligent people uh, who, you know, churn out of like places like MIT or whatever, I say mo- most intelligent, obviously, uh, yeah, intelligence can uh, have different forms, uh, of course. But, you know, these, these people who are like hyper talented at doing at doing certain things, they are hoovered up by, they're not like, 
being hoovered up to like build i don't know to uh to research antibiotics or like build um i don't know a rocket ship to try and get us to to wherever they're being hired by like facebook to work out how to make people click on ads um it it it, it does capture something about how the way capitalism like all the technology we have like the way we can use computers to like collect data in a way we never could before um and you think of how science fiction has traditionally thought about the possibilities of what we can do with technology as it happens it's it it ends up getting employed for the most um kind of yeah boring and kind of uh, run of the run of the mill things yeah Um, so it feels like it captures something like really uh tells you something about how capitalism functions now like of course there's a a whole university um dedicated to selling pizza and this whole infrastructure of working out where they've they've kind of um uh, they've worked out like the best way to stop somebody like getting out of paying for their pizza if they try to do that mm-hmm. like they've run all the data and the, it's like yeah of course it's all implied to just delivering a pizza in, in some ways that feels quite uh yeah, it captures a, a truth, I think. Yeah, and I think this is also kind of um, the one thing, I, the, the thing I mentioned about the Frederick Jameson definition of uh, the logic of late capitalism. The kind of the basic kind of premise of that is this idea that capitalism flows from encroaches outside of the borders of its traditional um, realm of like public life into private life in increasingly intrusive ways uh, that it's sort of that it's it kind of colonizes people's minds and behaviors in a way that was that was it kind of hadn't up until kind of the mid to late 20th century and I think kind of this is kind of in in a certain sense a demonstration of the functioning of that in that it's all these all these extremely involved mechanisms of uh capitalism and technology uh to just exploit or uh target and exploit extremely base human impulses and um and things on an incredibly intimate level so it's just kind of like um, a lot of thought has just gone into the pizza that's entering your mouth at this point, um, presided over by an extraordinarily <laughs> large and diverse range of people and um, and specialists in different areas. But yeah, that was that was kind of um, yeah, <laughs> that's something I think just the novel does very well. Yeah. So um, obviously, we, as we suggested, this is a, a book. Well. Cyberpunk is is kind of fundamentally about capitalism. This is a book about capitalism, so um, yeah, perhaps we could talk a bit more about what it's trying to say about capitalism. Um, I mean, just to give to again for people who haven't read the book a bit bit more kind of flavour. I mean, it, it's as well as what you've already mentioned. There's plenty of of what you might think of as like standard uh, genre cyberpunk stuff. So we. Uh, we it frequently mentions um the low glow which is obviously um logo and glow and you know the the neon that is like in every cyberpunk thing is is something that's mentioned here the low glow like this constant like glow that you can see like in the sky from all the advertisements everywhere um we have we have uh f-o-q-n-e's which are franchised organized quasi-national entities of course the idea that nation states become less important or powerful and uh, companies 
companies kind of take on um, some of that power is again a standard thing of of cyberpunk and these um people who work so yt works for one of these and as you as you suggested before this allows her to cross like borders um that other people can't again showing us that like companies have the power to uh to to try to transcend borders um it tells us that uh sort of sidewalks and schools and stuff of uh, um, old neighborhoods are like bulldozed governments are auctioning off their possessions um and and the roads are even owned by corporations now so yeah and they have this thing of like roads being marketed (laughs) to people like appeal to different types of drivers and so on and so forth so yeah it's just typical disappearance of like the public and the state um but yeah i think to me it's a book that understands the nature of capitalism very well i think yeah and i think it's 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 interesting uh the thing you mentioned with the idea of um kind of crossing territories as well there's this because one of the things that i I, um i think we talked about um before the episode but one of the things that is quite apparent is the fact that even though there's this great sense that there is a kind of a breaking down and a homogenization of the world in terms of um, how far uh, the influence of different countries can, well, different corporations can reach that uh, they have like absolutely no regard for, um, well, companies have absolutely no regard for kind of like state boundaries and things. And the world also, like, t- t- um, space has essentially been compounded because anyone, any, um, in a way that's, kind of you know was developing early into the 20th like through the mid 20th century but is now kind of crystallized in the sense that the metaverse is a kind of it's the global village of like the the kind envisaged by theorists like Marshall McLuhan in the 1960s but at the same time one of the things that Stevenson makes very apparent is um the sense that there are still physical borders and there are still there is still a global poor um, and that the flows of capital mm. have not yet reached them, um, and that there are, there are things I think you mentioned. There's a specific uh, kind of like corporate refugee culture or uh, element, yeah, enterprise refugees, um, and this sense of like a large part of the population. Even though a lot of the kind of the world that's in focus is the is the part of the world that's very involved in the global capitalism. There is in global capitalism, there is still a large segment of it that's actually excluded from it uh and is just being kind of displaced by these uh kind of large corporations and quasi nation states uh that's actually something even though i've mentioned um mentioned that it's it gets a surprising amount right in terms of anticipating the present age we live in and things that have actually come to pass one of the things it doesn't really reckon with is the the proliferation of computers and it there's one section i think where it gives an extremely um, limited, that it gives an extremely limited um, or extremely conservative estimate as to the number of computers existing in the world and the number of people who actually have internet access uh, by this point in time. Um, so that that's an interest. I, know, I think that's just kind of interesting in terms of framing it. It's, I guess, it, going back to William Gibson. It's that it's that definition of the idea that um, the future is here. It's just not very well distributed. Um, but it's it's a it's mm. playing out of that concept in a very real sense. Yeah, one of the things that I thought kind of marked it out from kind of the yeah I guess the traditional cyberpunk you could say that it might be parrying. They tend to be kind of c- companies uh, and those like corporate entities tend to be um, 
quite uh either like very gritty and um yeah kind of you know ruthless like underhand like organizations or very like slick and clean and kind of mm. cool um things the, in this book you get you get things like general jim's defense system and like admiral bob's global security um which kind of so you get this kind of silliness that uh, and uh, in the way that these in the way that these companies actually operate they're absolutely not but um again i think this this feels more familiar than than kind of some of the older cyberpunk stuff in terms of you know like capitalism working to try and like be your friend and like companies being these kind of nice cute friendly uh things that are like yeah they're our friends and they're, they're part of our life um it's not something that it necessarily delves into a lot but i just thought that was interesting that it felt like it um kind of understood yeah. that aspect or at least represented it in I'm these just, i'm just actually yeah. reminded of um another work of cyberpunk which um i think is the well i mean actually i'm sure i'm sure it has come up in other things but i'm just reminded by that of like blade runner 2049 one of the things that comes up very interestingly in that is um well, which I think I, I bring up just because it, it highlights that kind of contrast very well is the the Wallace Corporation, as is presented in that. It's talked about in these, you know, a lot of the focus is on um, the technology and the kind of like the visionary stuff happening behind the scenes. But uh, there's that character, Love, who exists essentially as uh, the corporation leader, um, Mr. Wallace's enforcer, uh, who is kind of like the main sort of like, I, I described her when I when I first saw the film as being like you think she's going to be the new uh, like uh, Rachel Tyrell, but actually she's the new Roy Batty. But she speaks entirely in sort of corporate jargon, even when she's like uh, even when she's like kind mm. of destroying um, people and like be, and um, and like fighting with Deckard and stuff. She's like, I hope you've enjoyed our product and stuff, and um, giving that kind of like strange corporate face to something that. Uh, or gi- giving that strange kind of like kitsch quality to something that's very very unkitsch, but yeah, no, I think that is that's an extremely important element of Snow Crash. The the kind of um, yeah the the corporate kitsch and the kind of like homeliness of it, or the the attempt to kind of like um, make it something familiar and homely. And I think actually that is that is something I I kind of focused in a lot as to. I was just thinking about like how how do we how do we frame that in terms of cyberpunk and like what what does it say about the vision of the future that we're seeing and the thing that kept coming back to me is the sense that um, we've talked about kind of the the accelerated sense of the the flows of global capitalism and one of the things that's kind of been talked about in literature since kind of the cyberpunk era of the 1980s, especially with uh, people like Nick Land and the CCIU, is the sense that capitalism behaves as, well, ascribing, it exists in a kind of like post-human or anti-human sense that um, it's something, even though it was birthed by humanity, it's become a kind of of self-proliferating force in and of itself that essentially drives its drives the decisions that lead to its continued existence um as mm. purely towards kind of its own self-sustaining quality and has become like a kind of an alien presence and i think it's like in more recent uh, aside from the kind of like 
the really flashy stuff, some of the more recent stuff that Nick Lance come out about has been to do with the idea that kind of like AI and capitalism are ex- uh, kind of inextricably linked. Uh, and where this comes to, where this where this relates to Snow Crash for me is the sense that um, capital has become this this thing that is no longer recognisable or, you know, as something inherently human. It's become a kind of inhuman entity in and of itself. And all this is, these attempts and these kind of, this corporate kitsch that surrounds it at all times isn't so much a an attempt to um, to make it homely as to kind of almost like rein in, I don't know, just kind of give it a human face or kind of like g- try and retain an element of humanity in it in order to control it in a way. Or, or, or there's a sense that there's a kind of, it's an attempt by kind of um, residual humanity to attempt to try and rein it in in some way. I feel that, yeah, I mean, and I would kind of, I would tie that into the larger thesis about um, the kind of global setup that we've got. This idea that, um, well, when we when we talk about things like the burb claves, as they're described, which are kind of like little kind of wealthy neighborhoods, which were the suburbs, which have become enclaves, mm. they are they are seen as something kind of outside of this intense kind of cap- capitalist technological sphere, even though the people in them are presumably high-powered people working within it. But it's this attempt, it's this attempt to kind of like crystallize and preserve some element of what came before in an increasingly alien and accelerated world that uh, people can't necessarily keep up with in a way, you know, <laughs> that one can, one has to kind of essentially become no longer human in a sense to really understand the the vastness and complexity of what's unfolding, um, the, and the, and 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 there's also the sense that kind of like no one person does have control. Uh, it's it's very kind of decentralized and people have control, but it's as you mentioned actually um, before before the podcast, there is there is supposedly a president, but we never see them. Um, oh yeah, that was yeah. No, I think he's uh, right at the right at the end of the novel. He he ends up getting on a helicopter with like the main man- antagonists, and uh, nobody knows who he <laughs> is. <laughs> I thought it was kind of yeah, it captured a lot about like yeah, what I was trying to say. I thought it was quite amusing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they're just kind of like they're just kind of like shut up, <laughs> go and sit in the corner, and, like let us. Yeah. <laughs> They don't care about him. Essentially just kind of like a constitutional monarch at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I guess that there's some of that captured in... um, Yeah, it makes that point about McDonald's, which is kind of like on one level, like a very obvious, like anti-consumer point. But it speaks to some of the stuff you were saying in that it has this idea of like McDonald's is home condensed into three-ringed binder and Xeroxed. Mm -hmm. And it says no surprises. It's the motto of the franchise ghetto. So like, yeah, the idea of like, the the fact that it can be um, photocopied like speaks to what you were saying, and there's the idea that it doesn't need a person anymore to like grow. It's like a a thing that can just replicate. That can be it's a like a process that doesn't need human input yeah. anymore. It can just be, and and yeah, obviously the thing it's replicating is the idea of home, which is like this human element you talk about, which is kind of like an emptied out. Uh, yeah, it's like. Oh, and what we're eventually going to be looking at is just some equivalent of like the human zoo at the end of 2001 or as it's described in the tech in the in the book 2001 space odyssey but um just kind of a a, 
a, a museum of what once was humanity <laughs> in in terms in in a world of something existing opposite well, outside of that but there's a lot to <laughs> i mean that yeah that's that's i think a, a conversation that can continue indefinitely as to like what what is happening there but i think can, can, yeah i was just gonna say i think you, you've already brought it up like i think it's really interesting that the suburbs are like a feature of this yeah um, as you mentioned, because they, I mean, I was kind of racking my brain when I was reading this and it, they don't, I don't think they feature really in cyberpunk, uh, generally speaking. Like obviously cyberpunk is very interested in the city. Um, it's like a an urban genre for the most part. But yeah, like when, yeah, is, sorry. No, I, just, I was just going to say, yeah, and it's, it's like very unusual that they feature. Uh, and I thought that was interesting. Mm. Because when you when you when you see kind of like depictions of wealthy people in other cyberpunk literature, there's there's a sense that they exist in a kind of protected space, but they are very more often than not in the higher upper echelons of the city. They're still kind of yeah. they're still in the city looking over it, and to exist entirely outside of that in another territory and indeed in another country is mm. is really is really weird, and and it's also in that that we have. And, and and the way they're depicted is very interesting as well. It's a kind of like paradise parodied version of suburbia, but like it's still like not exempt from the the kind of the the, the kind of extremeness of it. Like um, a lot of the I think like some of the only people we see in it are kind of like occasional glimpses of like small nuclear family groups, or yeah. very often it's like. The only ones that really seem to kind of like feature more prominently in the book are the kind of rowdy teenage boys of the Burbclaves, like uh, extremely privileged, well, uh, wealthy scions of of industry who um, who mm. are kind of well. That they actually, yeah. Whenever they're described, they're described as being act- literal testosterone junkies, like taking uh, testosterone boosters and steroids as recreational drugs and. Um, Driving around in what, um, driving around in what, like, YT, I think, primarily describes as bimbo boxes. So, like, little kind of family vehicles that, um, they, they have access to. And it's weird that that's actually something I wanted to kind of, I I was, I thought of in terms of what I was saying about kind of the alienness of technology as a kind of anti-humanist, um, reading in that it's almost like a kind of response to, a response to that to emphasize and kind of push to extremes the physicality of their own bodies um i don't know as like a kind of like only recourse for kind of um expressing some existence that's not the um that's not techno capital if if, and on the presumption that they're kind of they're cut off from it or they're not bright enough to understand it or something but yeah that's that's i'm not sure i'm not sure where i'm really going with that but that is kind of it's weird that like that is like kind of the norm in kind of like the majority of males that ca- come from that background. It's just they're all on steroids and they're all, they've all got ridiculous names. Well, I think one of them is called literally Studley, or that's kind of like a, an assumed name that they have. Um, yeah. Which is which is yeah, it's very strange. But yeah, um, I think there's 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 threads in that we we should like pro- we'll probably return to, but like. Uh, you mentioned kind of like race being an interesting factor, as we we already I mean we already talked about that in the in the summary. The fact a lot of stuff, a lot of um, stress is placed on um, on uh, hero protagonists uh, 
uh, mixed race uh, statuses as a plot point um, and also as a counterpoint to YT as YT um, and and also just like the depiction of the global poor. But like, what was what was your ma- main kind of take from that? Um, yeah, well, I think I think the first thing I'd say is I think again, and this is often race is often comes up like through these um, suburbs as well because like the idea is like they're all. That each one's kind of like their own state and there's like places where they have signs up saying like white people only and there's um yeah various like yeah a lot of the states are built around some kind of of like uh racial categorization or whatever um i think a lot of cyberpunk even cyberpunk which does a very good job of kind of critiquing the the neoliberal capitalism that it's writing about can almost buy into the idea that neoliberalism has that it's because it's like transnational it it kind of is uh like post-race and like you know because mm-hmm. borders have been broken down like yeah like with this global community and um yeah there's in this idea of like mixing that the um cyberpunk often has of like mixing like uh like drawing on Asian culture and like kind of mixing it together there's this kind of I don't think race is often a big feature of cyberpunk because there's an assumption that neoliberalism rather than just being about goods like moving it really does break it because it destroys the nation state and the nation state's power therefore it to some degree like racism kind of uh yeah fizzles out because we're not we're not in that mode anymore which of course is mm-hmm. wrong um so the first yeah. <laughs> so the first thing i'd say is i think it's unusual and uh good that it has that consideration in here i often um i often just struggled to understand what um stevenson wanted to do with race or what he thought about race yeah. because he I mean, in terms of these very obvious things, like when there's signs saying white people only and stuff, I mean, it's pretty obvious that he, he that's meant as like a, a critique of um, of how how this kind of capitalist system allows you to like build your own, um, yeah, because you can like build your own effectively nation state, you can, yeah, uh, and because the nation state's not there to enforce things, you can like build your own very, uh, you're not, uh, the only thing that, that, decides what you can do is money so you can build these like express explicitly racial uh racist um little mini mini racist mm-hmm. utopias and, and so on i think that's obviously a critique but yeah a big um there's a lot of times where like race uh like racial slurs are used and stuff in the book where i couldn't mm-hmm. tell if like he maybe thought like that these like sounded cool in these like dialogue exchanges but are you thinking in terms of like because some of them are kind of like I don't know if they were inventions of the book, but they were not ones I'd heard before. Like the 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 in, well, at some point prior to the events of the book, there was an influx of immigration from the former Soviet state of Tajikistan, and they just referred to them as Jeeks for right. short. Yeah. Um, that was yeah. That, I mean, that's one of the ones that I, I remember distinctly coming yeah. up, and they're 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 presented in a very kind of like. There's a distinct degree of like kind of orientalization going on with their depiction, um, just as primarily kind of like driving extremely weirdly pimped out, um, weirdly like pimped out taxi cabs with alien livestock in the back yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. And there's this whole, like, so the big, big plot point of the book is that this guy, Bob Rife, is kind of, he's out in the sea on a big ship 
that has got like I don't know hundreds of other ships like lashed to it, and these are all like refugees from uh well explicitly not American right like people from yeah uh from the east shall we say it's like the way it's kind of implicitly framed i guess um and they yeah these are the people that kind of brainwashed through this um like language thing that we talked about in the in the synopsis but they're they're kind of there's this idea that they're they're coming right they're gonna arrive this huge boat with like all these people are coming and they're gonna swamp america and they're gonna overwhelm it and infect everybody with this um with Mm -hmm. this thing but there's a sense that he's well to me it felt like these refugees were being presented as that kind of threat and there was this they were like being compared to like ants and stuff you know like insects and they explicitly like uses the term washing up and uh they're kind of they're not very much they don't appear very much in the book they don't have very much agency they're just kind of framed as being like a part of the main bad guys thing and to me it felt like yeah i couldn't tell to what extent that was meant to be a critique it felt like there was a very um it felt sometimes to me like there was a real anxiety about like america being like overrun by refugees i don't know i just wondered yeah yeah, i don't know how you felt about that because i don't have an answer to it as i say i was just kind of unsure about where he was what his position was and that stuff yeah i mean that's interesting as well i mean this is kind of going back to kind of like um maintaining a bit of a kind of um pinch of salt with whatever um well maintaining maintaining a caution as to kind of the application of satire in this in the in the sense that kind Mm. of as as someone who is um who is involved you know he's essentially you know this book is a champ is fundamentally kind of like championing championing of some element of silicon valley culture while parodying it at the same time and in doing so there's a kind of there's a fundamental sense that um this <laughs> this reads as uh well i mean my my reading from that is the sense that kind of like Yes, I'm satirizing these things, but I'm going to do them anyway. Um, and in part of that would be to kind of like factor this, um, this demonst- you know, this this kind of uh, the well, I don't know like if the book's implying that there's kind of like uh, racist or racialized interpretations of events unfolding there, then um, it's not necessarily that Neil Stevenson as- ascribes to these views, but is using them as mm. a useful narrative point to drive things forward or just kind of accepts the ultimate fundamental logic of them and moves on mm. uh there, there's a sense you know there's a, there's kind of just um i guess kind of like one of the fundamental critiques of this is just the sense that it's like cyberpunk is not necessarily glorifying a future but it is just saying like but it is there's an inherently kind of like nihilistic streak to it that it is that is just well, this is how things are going. Um, keep up, <laughs> and um, and part of that is just kind of like um, not necessarily ascribing to to kind of like dubious racialized views about immigration, but um, accepting them as the kind of nar- the unfolding narrative without necessarily. I don't know. This is a bit of a tangent. This is kind of like I'm just kind of spitballing as to uh, how I might kind of factor that in. Maybe maybe that's something I could could return to in a bit, just because I'm. I'm thinking as well in ter- well, I kind of want to talk about the thing I think um I want to ultimately build up to is is this 
description of the kind of mimetic virus and the and identifying it with the spread of religion mm-hmm. i think um one of those things that is um one of the things that plays quite well the, the one aspect of that which i will which i will return to in a bit but um is the sense that is the sense that kind of like there's a traditional pattern of like religion flowing from east to west and um and the sense that kind of like the, the most kind of dynamic and the most um most kind of rapidly spreading and powerful religious forces are the ones that um populate which um initially take on um magnitude amongst kind of like the world's poor mm. and then um and then spread out up and go, you know, into spread out into kind of like more wealthy centers of power, and then get taken up by the upper echelons of their society, having having been taken on by the kind of lower echelons of their society. I'm thinking in terms of like the initial spread of uh, Christianity in in um, not necessarily like in in kind of like the first place in um, in like Judea and things, but in terms of it was in kind of like what was generally referred to as like kind of the Eastern Empire. But yeah, but, but there's a sense that like kind of this is just a repeating pattern that um, is now entering a final phase in this in this world um, via the the spread of this this new kind of religion that's coming out of well emerging from the past and transmitting through uh, language into technology and stuff. But I think I think just the idea of like kind of it, it being this kind of like miscellaneous mass of humanity oh you know what's uh, thought of as just like a kind of homogenous mass of humanity bearing this message with it as a collective self-abnegating force i think is it's more just a kind of like historical or kind of poetic you know poetic kind of symbol of like how these things spread um that he was kind of capitalizing on with that and and also it's just this sense of kind of like yeah, <laughs> sorry. I, I I guess I don't really have an answer to that, but I think that is an interesting kind of interesting angle to take on that because that's it's essentially like an updated version of an earlier thing. And I guess what I the main thing I wanted to talk the main thing I I think is pertinent to this text is this sense that um, there is to some extent well the the main message that is. Um, Hell, you know that exists through this idea of like the meme virus the uh the image virus the thing that um passes as a that's like a curse that's like a kind of controlling thing that starts out in kind of pre-ancient times as this literal magical invocation that transfers through language through like kind of the babel myth and stuff mm-hmm. and then finds its ultimate kind of apotheosis in um the, the digital age um that implies a kind of this is actually yeah I, I might i might launch into this now as it seems pertinent but it's like there is a certain sense of determinism that runs through that's present in silicon valley culture in a in a weird way that um it's inherited through well there's actually an essay that i kind of read in preparation for this which sets up very well which i'm probably going to return to in a, in a bit but um do, have you read the the Californian ideology? No. It's a yeah. It's it's kind of like it was a long form article written, I believe, in 1997, which is just describing the kind of um, the uh, the history of um, 
the history of Silicon Valley and how it grew out of the hippie movement and stuff. But okay. one of the things they cite is a for- a certain form of um a certain form of um determinism present in Silicon Valley thinking, which grew out of um earlier ideas of America and manifest destiny. Uh, and, the, and there's a lot of talk about how the ultimate project of Silicon Valley is to cr- recreate a form of Jeffersonian democracy, which um, the the essay itself actually kind of like raises the point of um, <laughs> that this overlooks certain co- contradictions about uh, the figure of Thomas Jefferson and the founding fathers himself. You know, they yeah. when they when they use the term Jeffersonian democracy, they're talking about kind of freedom of expression and the American. And that aspect of the American dream, which um, it, and entirely bylining the issue of slavery that was very present in the formation of said Jeffersonian democracy. Yeah. But it's that it's that inheritance of a certain type of determinism present in thinking about technology. And the what the thing that made me this made me think of specifically was the idea of well. It hits certain notes with uh, the idea of Rocco's basilisk. This idea that, like, kind of the technological singularity will create a kind of god entity, which always existed because it was always going to exist because it exists as the logical endpoint of uh, human technological progression. And then this god will have like surveyed its history and its becoming uh, throughout its its kind of like suspended existence. But like that was that was formed by the. That wasn't actually presented by Curtis Yarvin, but that emerged out of like, f- um, out of a distinct kind of um, type, like draw branch of Silicon Valley thinking mm. through the website Less Wrong, I believe, which is I think probably too much to go into there. But that's something that um, El Sandifer's book Near Reaction of Basilisk talks of a lot. But but yeah, it's it's this kind of this determinism, this thing of something already existing. And a, a pattern that technology must necessarily follow because it's a pattern that humanity must necessarily follow. That I think is that I think is something that's kind of like present in the book. And I think that that doesn't sort of follow the um I think in terms of like using that to understand kind of the racial element in that and in the way that you described, I would say that I guess I would just say that it, you know, I guess going, that just goes back to kind of like the fundamental nihilism of it, the sense that like, no, this just has to happen in this way. And we must let the uh, flows of technology allow it to happen without casting judgment on uh, what questions that may be asked because, or, you know, what questions it might raise up around uh, how one treats one's fellow humans. Mm. That was a long way of saying I don't really know that it's (laughs) worth discussing. No, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I think you've you've raised some good points there uh, that come out of that, and yeah, yeah. Even if like we can't answer that necessarily, I think yeah, certainly brings up some yeah. some interesting it's, avenues. It's, and I think it, I think it says something about this book that it's like it's not especially complicated in any one thing that it's doing. It's just Neil Stevenson literally throwing everything at the wall, and so in order to critique any one point of it you must necessarily critique everything that is that it is possible to link to the book and so yeah so that's my way of apologizing for the slightly rambling form i seem to have taken with attempting to crack like what it is he's saying yeah, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I think, I think one of the things you, you said there as well like i definitely think 
though he is in a lot of senses explicitly parodying and critiquing the kind of thinking or ideas that you might associate with Silicon Valley you're 100% right that he definitely has at other points you can see he also thinks in that way sometimes like he definitely has that Silicon Valley mindset in the way he approaches certain things for sure Mm -hmm. Um, so I wanted to talk uh, a bit about the way that work appears in uh, Mm -hmm. this book I mean, I've got my own little rant I want to go off on about this, if you, if you don't mind. Yeah. And, uh, oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, and, uh, yeah um, obviously, if you've got any any thoughts to add, then then, then please do. But I thought that this is what, an aspect as well that the book was really, really good at was capturing like the the nature of work under neoliberalism. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I don't think in a lot of... And a lot of cyberpunk, we're probably following around some kind of outsider figure who's... Uh, you know a hacker or um, like a a mercenary or something it's not somebody generally speaking who's like embedded in the system and like working and doing their day-to-day thing Um, but this through um, YT's mum is quite a uh, appears quite often in the book and she works uh, for the feds basically but but her workplace I think captures a lot about what it is like to work under neoliberalism now. So this this appears not just in... Uh, this isn't just to do with YT's mum, but we get this thing. Also, I think it's Bob Rife's employees who are surveilled 24-7. And this is justified by the idea that he's dealing in information and they're carrying it in their heads and taking it home and it doesn't belong to them. Um, <laughs> this makes me think there's a lot of things there where like, if you... So I'm aware of this through like uh, video game companies, but there's been people who, when you sign up, uh, like in your contract, like your creative ideas are like owned by them. So there's a sense that like even, do you know what I mean? Like your, the things that your creativity that you might want to take home with you is still like theirs. Um, We also get even, um, again, through video games, um, there's, if you... Uh, games that have like things where you can create stuff in them like the in the license agreements it explicitly says that like they they own the things that you create so this this whole idea of like not just you going to work this old this old idea we had of like you know you go to work and you clock in and then you do what the company or the factory or whatever expects of you until that time and then you clock out and you go home there's this extension where it owns like your whole being and even the stuff internal to you, which this captures very well, I think. Absolutely. But yeah, her her workplace, there's this whole, it, it captures this whole thing of like um, appearances and like what you've got to do in the modern workplace. So they have work times, but she gets there early and stays late every day because that's what you have to do. You're not, you're not and this is the thing, companies don't, companies don't explicitly tell you you have to come in before your schedule to start work and you have to stay late. But we all know it nevertheless. Like that's 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 how they do it. And that's is, is how this workplace functions. Like she's not told to do that, but she knows very well that she's expected to do that. Um and you have to even though she doesn't get a lot of money and she's not treated with respect, you have to show you care about your job. You have to be happy about your job. Um, you've got to be 
incredibly flexible, which of course is what's well, valued, uh, which valued now in like modern workplace, you've got to be incredibly flexible, especially, you know, with like new forms of precarious work and things like that. Mm. Um, so again, th- this is like, there's this whole idea. Um, if your computer breaks or something, you can't just like wait for your computer to be fixed. You've got to be flexible. You've got to move to somewhere else and like log on and, and get back to work. Um, there's this thing in it where you're you're free to like you come into work and they have all the desks there and you're free to choose <laughs> to work wherever you want apparently but if you choose the same desk every day it will be noticed is what she said <laughs> and this is this happened to my like my wife worked somewhere that was very um free in their own heads but and you could choose there was no like nobody had their own desks right because you know that's mm. you've got I don't know in their mind like if you go to a different desk every day that means I don't know what that means you're more creative or something and she wanted to just use the same desk because and she was kind of even though you know you're free to do it she was kind of told like don't do that yeah. like so, it's not the spirit of what we do around yeah so again that that <laughs> captured something perfectly I think and there's this whole thing about she gets emails and they monitor, again, they monitor everything. This is again, like the modern workplace is, is more and more built to like monitor what you do, especially now we like use computers all the time. Um, this is like, this is how Amazon warehouses like function. They, they ruthlessly monitor like what you do, how long it takes you to do everything. Um, how does it take you to get from here to here? And this is what's happening in her workplace. They look, how much time does it take you to read this email? Um, so it's got that aspect of like being monitored, um, which again, I think is more and more true. And, but she's got to calculate like how much time should she spend reading the email, not based on how long it takes her, but like what it will look like. So she says like, if you're a young employee, you should generally read stuff slower so that <laughs> it looks like you're not cocky. But if you're older, you got to show you got to do it a bit quicker so that they don't think like you're losing it or whatever. And this this ties into the, I, I I guess you you might be familiar with like David Graeber's ideas of bullshit jobs. Um, I'm familiar with the idea of bullshit jobs. I, I haven't read like the, the the text on it, but I think I have. Yeah, yeah I, 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 think I, have I haven't read it either. <laughs> yeah, but I just <laughs> yeah kind of totally familiar with the idea. So this whole thing of like she's spending all her time kind of uh, managing the appearance of work. And like spending mm-hmm. how, deciding how long to spend doing things based on how it would be interpreted. So yeah, I've run through a lot of stuff there, but I just think this this whole thing of like the way that she's surveilled, the way that she's monitored, the, the whole thing of like managing appearances of, of how modern workplaces present this idea of being flexible, like, oh, you can, you know, you can you don't have a desk you can go where you want you can do what you want we're really flexible you're kind of free to you know this whole idea of flexible work being like a liberating thing that we flexible work means we can decide when we're gonna start and stuff and it's great and all this but then obviously the way it actually implements it's actually implemented you see it's not really flexible at all there are all these kind of unspoken rules and the the only uh person like in the side of that relationship who's expected to actually be flexible it's like you like it's mm-hmm. never the company so yeah again i just thought work is not something i see represented a lot in neoliberalism and i thought this whole bit of unseeing like whitey's mum's workplace felt very very familiar to me of like mm-hmm. my own experiences in work um 
experiences that I'm not personally familiar, but have read about, you know, with like, like I say, like Amazon warehouses, like precarious work. So yeah, I, I thought that was a really strong part of the novel. Yeah. I, I also, I think Stevenson also de- deals very well with the flip side of that in the, the re- well, the reason why, um, the reason why Hero Protagonist is, um, is living in a shipping container and delivering pizza is because he was f- essentially fleeing corporate culture. Like he, you know, there's talk about, you know, he's like, he was involved early on in, um, in the development of the metas- the metaverse and stuff. And he worked with uh, da- David, who is now this kind of like very powerful CEO, who's still kind of on, on uh, familiar personal terms with Hero. Mm. But uh, Hero didn't want to be part of that because, well, his objection was that because um, computer systems had, um, and, and then this was actually a kind of like a, a real world thing that computer programming passed from what was a previously a kind of cottage industry to something or could function as a cottage industry to a factory industry where uh, no one person was responsible for the entirety of a program. Um, his his greatest fear was losing his status as an independent programmer and becoming someone who was part of a production line. Yeah. And that's why he, he left that. And he does also, there is a point where he talks about getting he's essentially like headhunted by a guy representing this company that's doing very well and could do with someone with his expertise on board. And he's like, no, because then I'll be working for the Nipponese and I would have to buy into Nipponese corporate culture of like, um, uh, all the kind of like stereotypical, like, um, practices of like obedience and, um, and like kind of rigorous enthusiasm for the company that is compulsory for working somewhere like that. Uh, so yeah, that that's and so like his alternative for that is one. Well, after he's after he loses his job as a pizza delivery guy by crashing into a swimming pool, um, which is why which is how like YT helps him and gets connected to him. His main job becomes essentially gathering data for the CIC, which was previously the uh, Library of Congress and is now kind of essentially an information repository for the CIA or something. I, yeah. I need I need to double check that bit. But, no, that's right. That's um, 100% right. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of but, like Wikipedia. Yeah, essentially. Um, and it's kind of that, I felt, was one of the most eerily prescient uh, part depictions of, like, the gig economy. Um, especially yeah. thinking of, in terms of, like, I'm thinking, like, the closest equivalent to what he's doing there is someone who's, like, a professional YouTuber uh, who's putting out content purely for the gathering of hits because he gets paid he gathers intelligence um purely for the um purely so that if someone happens to look something up someday they'll get information about um that you know they'll look at they'll look up information and if it's the information that he put on the database then he'll be rewarded monetarily for that yeah. one reference but it's an extremely like speculative like oh, if I've got this information, I'm just going to put that out there and see what comes back, and presumably most of it brings nothing. But that is kind of like what so many, you know, that is the nature of content creation on the internet for the large part these days. Just um, a lot of people are kind of like backing up with like Patreons and things, but there are people who have made an industry out of like purely algorithmically generated content uh, intended to get clicks for adver- for like tiny increments of advertising revenue. Oh yeah, that's 100%. And, and yeah, you've got to do yeah. it like he does it. Like you've got to just put out 
loads and loads and loads of yeah, because mm-hmm. that's the idea. The kind of idea is that people just put up there whatever they find, and you don't. You, you might kind of refine and get an idea of what's more likely mm-hmm. to stick, but you never know like what's gonna. And, yeah, and hero is presented as being um, someone who is actually on the more refined end of it, and the less refined end of it, are the people they refer to as gargoyles who just literally go outside and walk around covered in recording apparatus. Yeah constantly uploading information like completely miscellaneous information to the to the cic um on in the hopes that some of it might stick and um but these people are despised because most of pretty much everything they bring is just irrelevant details that people could just go outside and see anyway Um, (laughs) and yeah I, i thought that was a that was something very, very kind of like good. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was just yeah, very nicely done, very prescient. I think well that done. I think that <laughs> I think that definitely relates to what you're saying as well about how Neil Stevenson understands computers like far better yeah. than other writers yeah. because yeah, this whole going back to, to to kind of your starting point of coding being some kind of moving into like a, a factory system. I guess that kind of comes out of him understanding like the reality of uh, computing and like where it's going. Yeah, and also I, I like yeah, what you said about him not taking that job because he didn't want to buy into the culture. That kind of, yeah, t- ties into one of the things I was trying to say about work now where, like, not not that I'm trying to, like, romanticise or say, like, there's not problems, but, like, the old model of, say, like, factory work where you were expected to, like, do the work, um, mm-hmm. whereas now, like, you're expected, like he says, like, you're expected to buy into the culture and, like, you're expected to behave a certain way it's the whole thing of like you have to dedicate your everything of yourself like your behavior or personality to like the company which is just like well that again that's just kind of the logic of late capitalism and um, yes. the just gradual encroachment over everything you do and just having to become the company yeah yeah that's quite intense yeah. um one kind of throwaway point i would also make if we're if we're talking about the issue of race is um I think I think also one that connects to this idea of like um, if cyber, cyberpunk having not having an inherent critique, but not necessarily having a moral dimension to that critique, or asking too many questions beyond the um, the purely aesthetic um, things that it presents. I mean that that is something core to the idea of like the uh, the, the the fundamental postmodernism of of cyberpunk fiction. The the heightening of aesthetics at the um without asking questions beyond aesthetic things and the championing championing of the image in the mtv generation uh over nuances of like what questions it may f- throw up about race um but one of the things that i would point out is the fact that if you look at when you get a few bio- biographical details of hero protagonist um they do strangely echo those of um, Neil Stevenson himself in that, like, they were both, um, I can't remember where Hero studied, but uh, they're both presented as having, like, a minor, well, as being physics graduates. And um, there's there's a certain extent to which the character is self, self-based. self um, And the fact that, like, this is Stevenson wanting to, you know, Stevenson kind of, like, he wanted his, like, kind of, like, cyberpunk avatar is a mixed race African American Japanese person. It's, it's just kind of interesting, and um, I, I don't know where I'm necessarily reading that, but that is kind of that's 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 curious. The other the other point actually I wanted to sort of tie in briefly there was 
um, the fact that the way race is dealt with, it does actually kind of like, it approaches stereotypes associated with race um, in a way that would be interesting and subversive if they were being, if these points were being made by someone of that race and not Neil Stevenson. But I kind of, I kind of just want to leave that there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, one other thing I, I want to touch on uh, is the is the way that the book deals with sex, or I think particularly YT sexuality, which is quite mm-hmm. a, a theme of the book, or appears quite a lot in the book. So yeah. <laughs> um, so just to start, off, YT is fifteen years old. Um, there's a lot of stuff about her sexual desire and other people's sexual desire for her now i'm sure 15 year old girls um, do experience sexual desire but at the same time we have uh a uh yeah a, a fully grown man writing about an underage girl having sex a lot or not having sex a lot but talking about her sexual desire and desire for her a lot in a way that yeah, sometimes made me uncomfortable. I mean, I, I will say I think the book sometimes does some good stuff in terms of capturing uh, stuff about like male psychology. There's one bit where he says something about like every man. I think I, can't, I think he says like up to the age of thirty, like or something like that, believes that if they dedicated themselves for like a year to like being a, a like badass, like training martial arts and stuff, then they would be like super tough and would be able to destroy anyone which i think is probably true um uh, sorry not true that they could do it true that they think that um but yeah there's a lot of stuff like that actually that was that was actually one of my favorite lines of the book because hero protagonist is um actually conveniently uh, relieved of that notion because he's met raven and it's like no actually this is the person who's the ultimate badass there is no other potential person who there's no other candidate for ultimate badass so now i can stop worrying about it yeah (laughs) which is i I thought that was actually just quite a quite a fun irreverent take on that whole thing yeah but yeah there's um in terms of the there's a guy who when yt gets like um, temporarily arrested and locked up there's a guy working there who uh the the way i describe it he's angry at her for making him horny in a way that kind of yeah captures something about the kind of uh, yeah aggressive misogyny that yeah the way that he 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 he, see, he sees her as something that he wants to have sex with and he's angry at her and it's her fault um, mm. which definitely captures something. There's a lot of stuff about Raven who you mentioned as kind of this embodiment of like a threatening maleness. So I, I do think there's some good stuff in there, but yeah, I just wanted to tell you felt about it because to me I don't know if we need a sex scene with a 15 year old girl in it no, which is what no. we do have i and i remember now looking at your notes like i'd sort of i'd forgotten that bit was in the book when i um suggested it for mm. this episode and i was like sorry i made you read that <laughs> um, but yeah no that's it's eerily prevalent like the fact that it seems to be just like almost like neil stevenson had like just the people look you know and people looked at her ass just like copy pasted just to accompany any movement she makes like any any direction her ass is facing that will draw the kind of 
I guess it's a critique of the male gaze, one might say. But this is, this is always the thing, isn't it? You don't it's know, a... like, is that, because it's like, yeah, that works as a critique, but it could also just be... It's just there. Yeah, like, because, yeah, authors of, mean, uh, often do that. They they like to spend like... some time being horny about their characters, yeah. and you don't know, are they just being horny? Yeah, is Neil Stevenson being horny about the idea of YT being looked at? by these people or is he critiquing it i don't know yeah also this is the fact that she's like attracted to hero protagonist one other thing that occurs to me is this sense that um i think matching up timelines no stevenson was the age that hero protagonist is meant to be which is like in his early 30s which he like acknowledges as being like an old man Mm. uh, surrounded by like these junior hackers and people and that's that's weird but um I guess, like, the one thing, the thing I would raise, like, this goes, this kind of chimes with what I was saying about race, in fact, is that, well, again, cyberpunk is, uh, while it does ask very, very deep questions about many, many things, at the same time, it is championing the pure, like, superficiality of an image Mm. and, and, and with a description of something potentially, like, edgy, and like systematically in many cases systematically ignoring any greater implications of what that thing could mean and that's like kind of that is just cyberpunk practice that's what you do um and it's sort of one of the and so i think kind of one one perfect example of that is you know it's something fundamentally kind of cyberpunk about describing the fact that she is frequently referred to as like having having by necessity of the job to wear like an anti-rape device at all times Mm. um but doesn't spare a single moment kind of or even acknowledging at any point saying like this is shocking and quite dark that's just a detail thrown in there Mm. in a way that and and there's a sense that like the uh, the tenets of the genre make it so that you you know uh kind of prevent you from acknowledging that uh you know it would be fundamentally un-cyberpunk to acknowledge that and i guess if we were to make this a kind of neil stevenson apologia on this point you could say like this is just him he's he's enacting parody it's got to be if if he's doing a parody it has to be 100 percent cyberpunk and Mm. he's maintaining the spirit of it by doing that um but also it could just be one of those things that's like a throwaway detail put in to just add an ambient kind of air of edge right. in the same way like someone like George R. R. Martin just constantly keeps dropping allusions to rape without, act- or, you know, not even necessarily as a plot point just to give a kind of like ambient, this is edgy, yeah. this is dark quality to the writing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that That would be kind of my fundamental take on that. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I know you uh, wanted to talk uh, a bit about this book in relation to the American century. Um, I don't really know what that means. So uh, yeah, okay. if you can. Um, well, this is kind of something that emerged toward kind of when I was trying to join up the the dots to of this. Um, so I guess starting out with the the term the American century, it it is just based on an idea that I think was put about by a number of thinkers kind of towards the middle of the century that if the 19th century was the the century of the British Empire, the 20th century was the era of the American Empire with it as its, with kind of America as the fundamental world power and America as the thing that determines not just the course things take, but also 
acts as a kind of universal peacekeeper, and the term mm. uh, Pax Americanum is thrown around in the same way Pax Romanum was about kind of the era of the Roman Empire. But it's, I guess this is kind of like chiming with, uh, you know, this this book would have come out around the the time the end, the people were thinking about the concept of the end of history as well. Um, but there's a sense that kind of like the 90s with the end of the Cold War represented an acute and a kind of like an accumulation of all the elements all the kind of cultural developments which had come in the in the preceding century reaching a kind of melting point and from that the the form things were to take would kind of crystallize from there but at the same time um there is also the sense that having reached this point of kind of apotheosis in the development of american culture and american power and america's place in the world um, that it would then burn out because it um, can only because uh, you know no no great power can hold no, no entity can hold on to power in this kind of permanent sense and there must always come a point of fragmentation mm. and um, in some ways well one of the things that's introduced very early on is that we are sort of looking at that point of fragmentation as in like the federal government is only now um, occupies like a small part of the continental United States and the rest is kind of broken up into French lits and things. And also, also, even though I mentioned earlier about like, you know, the existence of the kind of like global South or kind of like uh, the poor parts of the world existing and their status not having moved on in this kind of like new technological era. Yeah. Um, there, This is kind of going going to questions of like, America um, and the loss of its industry in this kind of in the state of late capitalism um, and the idea of like kind of work and industry and and by that by extension of that power being shipped out to poorer countries or or countries where people will work for less but also there's the sense of kind of like uh, there's a kind of growing kind of dynamism in sort of like the tiger economies of Asia or um, or things like that, and and one of the, and one of the things they mention early on in the text is that America, just as a as an entity, is is still maintaining its edge over the rest of the world in terms of power. But there's only three things it still does best, which are uh, I think it's music, microcode, and pizza delivery, <laughs> and um, and that's kind of and that's how it's still existing in the world. But the uh, when I was talking about kind of like the American century, I feel one of the things I, I kind of identified that as being a presence, well, resounding with um, with this book is the sense that, uh, with the book, with the novel Snow Crash, is the sense that everything we're seeing is drawing on developments earlier in the century. We see kind of, we get very explicit timelines, like the fact that um, we learn quite late on in the novel that um, both um, Hero and Raven are the um are the children of um well they were both i think their fathers were both present at the explosion at nagasaki or kind of like were a safe distance away but this left a big impression on both of them and so they're kind of like their legacy is very much tied into um the the the, the world well the world following world war Two, mm. and like they're the children that came you know they're essentially 
boomers. They, they're the children that came out of the dawn of the American century, mm. um, which is which which is essentially identified as having form, fermented after World War Two, and, and it's a kind of ascent to power then. Mm. Um, and that, that's kind of crystallized by the sense that that's that's the point at which America became a nuclear power. Um, but there's also references to the fact that Uncle Enzo, the head of the mafia, is a Vietnam veteran and one belonging to extremely like kind of powerful special forces thing. And also, yeah, so it's just this, there's that, so there's that element, the generational thing leading up to the 90s where this generational conflict as such may happen or, or that these generations will fulfill the moment of their doing stuff. <laughs> of, like they accomplished the thing they were meant to achieve. But the other thing I was going to raise about that is the fact that if we're looking at the timeline, we've got the development of two types of capitalism between um, the kind of 1940s and the 1990s. One of them is, and this is going back, well, the first of these, which I'm, I'm going back to the uh, the Californian ideology, that essay I mentioned, was the fact that um, the Silicon Silicon Valley is, um, you know, the, the Silicon Valley culture and the Californian ideology was what kind of came out of the post-1960s, like, haze of, like, sort of the hippie. Mm. And it's described as being kind of, like, the result of a diabolic, diabolical pact between former hippies and the emergent yuppie culture of, like, the 1980s and 1970s under uh, Nixon and Reagan. Yeah. And... And so, like, that, that is kind of a background presence in this. And at the same time, we're looking at... I mean, the whole, the whole idea of, like, um, late capitalism is sort of linked to... Um, actually, I suppose, no, this is something that kind of, like, figured in my thinking, but I was just thinking about the kind of the, the Eisenhower warning of the rise of the, um, the military-industrial complex. But I really... I, I, I realised, like, looking back at my notes, I raised that as a counterpoint because that's sort of we're seeing a phase beyond that now but mm. the other thing that i would mention in this kind of like loosely assorted patchwork of things that the novel seems to bring together into a rough cohesion is the um the way that the bob rife cult is um described which is even though it's drawing on this idea of like kind of this ancient thing coming into existence um there's a sense that like while technology was the thing that brought it about, America as an entity was a key part of, you know, setting the location, setting the place and setting the stage for this revival to come about through technology. Because um, one of the things, the way that um, Stevenson describes Bob Reif's cult, and it's connected to the the Reverend Wayne's Pearly Gates franchise, which is another of these great kind of mega corporation things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they they mention as being a very integral part of its belief structure is a very, very much kind of like America-centric belief system um, that draws on the kind of manifest destiny idea and the thing and the kind of the legacy of its colonial settlers and also just like kind of just the fundamental things of both evangelical America and also things like Mormonism that America had a destiny that was tied up in a which was very much a kind of theological idea and then this becomes the vehicle through which this ancient kind of meme virus thing is, transmits and i i don't really have like a kind of key kind of argue, i'm not saying that this is like a key argument i'm making but I, I feel like this is i feel like this is a kind of background presence to the 
that just kind of more or less situates the world in which these events take place. And that was why I, I thought that was why I kind of like initially just penciled this idea in of like it's the novel of the end of the American century because um yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's it, basically. Um, but it's just kind of, I don't know, there's a sense of things that maybe there is a conclusion that's more definite to be reached there, but I just think, I felt like that was, an, that was my main thing that I was taking away from this. And as we're still kind of, like, unresolved as to how, you know, to what extent and in what ways this is a parody, it's difficult to really pin down if it's seeing anything as a novel or what if it, or if it is saying something what, but that is, that is one thing I would put forward as a candidate, I would guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I think that's a, a nice place to to come to an end. And yeah, I think uh, yeah, there's plenty of, plenty of stuff to think over there. I think both of us have have at times had trouble knowing like where to land on this book. And I think that it kind of tells you something about the nature of it. As as you, th- there's so many other things we could have talked about as well. Like there's a lot a lot to touch on. And like you said earlier, he throws he's throwing a lot of stuff at the wall. Um, so yeah, it can take you in all kinds of directions, and uh, yeah, it's a, mm-hmm. it's difficult to tease apart like where where it's going in some places. But I, I think we've we've uh, touched on some interesting elements anyway. So yeah, it's yeah. been good. So um, yeah, thank you very much for coming on, Lucy. Thank you very much for inviting me. This has been a blast. And people should check out Weird Signal. As I said, it's W Y R D. So obviously they can just search for that. But like, what's oh, the um... what's the Twitter as well? Our main thing, um, so our main service is like is SoundCloud is what we mainly go through, but like we've RSS feeded into like iTunes and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but um, the the at it well, on Twitter we're at Weird Signal Pod, all one word, and yeah, so so you can check us out there. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. All right. Cheers. So that is the end of my conversation with Lucy. Thank you very much for listening. As always, I'm going to take this opportunity to um, beg for iTunes reviews. I've just had a quick look. Uh, I don't think I've had any for a while. And uh, yeah, I've just had to read through them again. They're really nice to read. It's great to know when people are enjoying this. And it does help the podcast. It really helps with, with people seeing it and getting exposed to more people. So yeah, I, I uh, would really appreciate it if you if you just take a quick moment to, to give me a review on there. Um, that would be great. If you want to get in touch with me um, with any questions or comments or anything else, then you can tweet me at Utopian Horizons on Twitter. You can email me at utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. And as I mentioned, if you if you want to help to support the podcast and get access to some extra bonus stuff, then go to patreon.com slash utopianhorizons. As I, did, as I didn't do it at the beginning of the podcast, I'll just give another quick plug for my new podcast um get object which i'm doing with uh, rosie about objects in video games if you search get object all one word wherever you listen to podcasts you'll be able to find that um i am due to be recording another episode soon so shouldn't be too long until i've got something else for you yeah so um stay safe hope you've enjoyed this and i'll be back soon bye-bye